Good evening to each one of you. Good to see you all out. You've been an inspiring group. If you, if I have in a fraction inspired you as much as you have inspired me, I think we're on the right track. You've been a blessing, and I've thoroughly enjoyed being here so far. This evening, I titled the message, uh, The Spirit and the Bride. And you know, when I think of uh, God's design for His people, He has a keen interest in each one of you and I. Are you aware of that interest? Are you, as, are you aware that God has a deeply, deeply invested interest in each of your lives? And that He wants the best for us? And when I think of that, I think of a structure that God has ordained. He put in place for our well-being, for our good. God put this design in place. He vested a number of authoritative arms, if you will, for the well-being of mankind. He ordained the civil authority. That is an arm that he designed for our good. And he also invested and ordained the arm called the church. He invested in that. And as we said last evening, he bought it with his own blood. And so now he has ordained these various arms. And then it's the arm of the home that is designed for the well-being and the good of mankind and to bring glory to his to himself. And so my friends this evening last evening we talked about the pearl being the church and how expensive it is God invested into it. Tonight I want for you to take your bibles and turn with me to uh Matthew Matthew, and we want to talk about, and then we'll go back to the Old Testament and journey our way through. Um, in Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. Verse 13, it says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, and I want for you to underscore that it is a plural word. It is not singular. He talks to his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, some say, thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged his disciples that they should not, that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. In this reading, we can see that Jesus was very interested that the disciples get a grip of who Christ is and that he said he is going to build his church. And friends, that applies through the era of time till now. And also yet tonight, 2018, Jesus Christ is willing and is able and is ready and is accomplishing that he is building his church. The question that you and I have to ask is, 
Are we instrumental in accomplishing that and being one of the one of the uh, disciples, if you will, or one of his children that he can build? That is a very key question. And uh, so when I look at verse 18, I say unto thee that thou art Peter upon this rock will I build my church. And I want that to be something very clear here. It is not talking about Peter, the apostle, where Jesus is going to build his church upon. Because let's do a, a, a two words, a, a word study on two words here. Peter, the name Peter means Petros. Okay, there in verse 18. So it's Petros, and that means a piece of rock, singular. And he says, thou art the singular, you are an individual. And then he says, upon this rock, which is Petra, means a mass of rock. Not a singular, but a mass. What is a mass? A mass is a lump or a body of matter that forms a whole. So it is a collection of many individual little particles to make one. And it is upon that where he will build his church. Not on individ not on a individual, but upon a body, a mass of individuals coming together to be one. Very important that we understand that. Because uh, not long ago, I was preaching in a church. They bought this uh, church, and it was a Catholic church. And I was standing there preaching, and I looked up, and there was an image of Peter glued to the ceiling of the church that I was preaching in, holding the key. So I knew the theology of the previous church, not the one that I was preaching at, but I could see that yes, there is theology there in the in the Catholic realm. They believe that Peter is the one that it is talking about here, and Jesus gave Peter that key. Wrong theology. It is saying upon this rock, this mass. I will build my church. Plural, not singular. And remember he was talking to the disciples. And so that is upon them. So I believe Jesus was saying upon you as disciples. I'm going to build my church. And it journeyed on down through uh, to 2018 yet today. Where he will continue to build his church upon that mass of body. So it's very key. Very key that we understand that. And it is then to that mass where he will give the key to the kingdom. What are the keys to the kingdom? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the key to the kingdom. And the church of Jesus Christ, this mass has been given the responsibility or the authority, whatever term you want to use, to embrace and implement and enforce, if you want to say that word, the gospel. That is what this mass is responsible to do. And so I believe he was saying, I'm going to build my church on the apostles. Some people would say that it was the profession that Peter was making where he was building on. I challenge that thought. I will take that, but I challenge that thought. I do not believe the church of Jesus Christ is built on profession. Because there's a lot of profession going on today in Christendom. And there's a lot of inaccurate profession being made. And there's a lot of profession of people making statements about Jesus Christ being the Son of God, the living God. But I want to say, friends, it is upon this rock. And why do I say that? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. 
Verse 19. It says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. That is talking about the church. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Referring right back to here, where it says about what Jesus was saying to the disciples. So he was he was saying, thou art, uh, and, sorry, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so my friends, that is uh, on the premises where I believe that this is talking about that these keys, this responsibility is given to us as a church. Not to Dennis, not to Dwight, not to Warren, etc. Not to Willis. None of us as pastors, but we as a body, a collective body. That is where the keys are handed to. Yes, he ordained uh, administrators to lead out in these in in this here body no question about it you can go to titus timothy and you can go through all those uh, scriptures and it is very clear that he has inv- or he has ordained it such that there are leaders no question about it but i want to say friends individualism is a killer and pastors are not excluded from that Neither one of us are excluded of the danger of individualism. And I want to say very clearly, friends, this scripture makes it very clear to me. He is talking to the disciples. There's a team. There is multiple ones, not an individual. And that still applies to leadership of today. I believe it is the body, a collective body. And this collective body, friends, I believe is called God's covenant people. Why do I say that? Well, I, I just want to say, friends, we are covenant people. And I want to get there in a, in a number of minutes. We all, as Christians, have made a covenant which makes us part of his covenant people. I realize back in the Old Testament, there was the nation Israel, and they were God's covenant people. But today, in the New Testament, we as well, as Gentiles, were grafted in, and we as well are God's covenant people. God made a covenant to Abraham. Or sorry, to Adam. Let me start at Abraham. I'll get to Abraham yet. Yeah. God made a covenant to Adam. God made a covenant to Noah. God made a covenant to Israel. And all these here covenants was God making covenants to these people. And then in turn, made covenants to God. And I want to say, friends, this more or this evening here in Minnesota, this assembly is part of God's covenant people. Going back to Ezekiel, Ezekiel gives a beautiful picture of what this uh, these covenant people are. Go to Ezekiel thirty-six. Ezekiel thirty-six. A beautiful picture there. And I want to say, it's, it starts in, uh, which verse do we want to start in? I believe in, uh, verse 22. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, whether ye went. 
And, and I just want to stop here. And I, I, I could uh, take you back, but I just don't have the time to do it. I could take you back to Ezekiel chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. And there was a picture of Israel, the nation Israel, God's chosen people, turning their back on God. And gradually, that Shekinah glory, which was between the two cherubims on top of the altar, there was the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, and that Shekinah glory, because of the stiff-neckedness of Israel and the uh, them turning their back on God, that Shekinah glory went out from between the two cherubims and went up on the eve of the building. And it rested there for a while. And it was almost as though God was begging Israel to come back and serve God. And he was communicating to Israel. But they refused. And they continued to refuse. I'm really condensing this. And then the Shekinah glory went from the eve of the building and it went up onto the peak. And God was still begging Israel to come back and to come back and to come back. But they would not. They continued to serve themselves instead of God. And they intermarried and etc. etc. Then all of a sudden, the Shekinah glory, which was, remember where that was? Right in the midst of them. From there, on the eve, to the peak. Now the Shekinah glory left and went back on the mountain. And it rested there for a bit. And Israel still would not come back to God. And then... The Shekinah glory, I believe, went back to the Father, back to heaven. And that is then when those 400 some years of dead silence, no voice from God anymore. No voice from God. And I want to say, my friends, tonight, if we would grasp the deadness and the darkness when there is no voice from God, we would grasp how why it is called the dark years. Because there was no voice from God. Because the Shekinah glory that was right in the midst of them went back to the one that gave it. It went back to the Father. And it was all dead quiet. No voice from God. Until one day, there was shepherds abiding on the hillside, watching over their sheep. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. That is that same Shekinah glory. The glory of the Lord shone round about these shepherds and they were sore afraid. Why? What was the message that these shepherds heard? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is coming. The Messiah, that Shekinah glory, He is coming. And the shepherds, they saw the glory of the Lord. And so from the time that the Shekinah glory left the altar, went back to the Father, all those dead quiet years, and now the message is coming. This Shekinah glory is coming. Jesus Christ. And those shepherds, they were astounded. And th- does that give you an understanding why the people at that present time, some of them got very, very excited? Because they knew. They knew what Isaiah said. They knew what Ezekiel said. And now it is coming in, this Shekinah glory. Wow, what a gift. This has been so dead. It has been so quiet. You take your time and read Ezekiel uh, 9, I believe it's 8, 9, 10, and 11. You take your time and read that. And now we're in Ezekiel 36. And he's saying, thus saith the Lord, he's saying again, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, whether ye went. And now look at what he says in verse 23 in Ezekiel 36. I will sanctify my great name which was profaned among the heathen which ye have profaned in the midst of them and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord saith the Lord God when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. Sanctified in you before their eyes. Underscore that. 
And then he goes on to say, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Now look at what it says. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Now look at what it says in verse 26 and 27. A new heart also will I give you. A new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh. And it says again, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and ye shall be my people and I will be your God. Friends, turn with me to John 17 now. John 17 where this uh, was, can I say, fulfilled. The prophecy here was of this church that he is going to establish and there's going to be new hearts. Their spirit is going to dwell within hearts and such like. In uh, John 17, it says in verse 16, or let's start in verse 15. Uh, Let me give you verse 14. I have given them my word, and the world hath hated them. So there it's talking about the heathens hating those that the word was given to them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. Now look at what it says. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And now in 19, and for their sake I sanctify myself, that they also may, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast seen me. Now look at what it says in verse 22. And the glory, that Shekinah glory, all the way back, what I was telling you when you see it at the beginning, that Shekinah glory that was sitting on the altar about between the two cherubims, that same glory, it's talking about here. The glory which thou hast given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I desire or I want or I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. I have declared unto unto them my name, and I will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. And just another note here. So we're talking about this glory, this new spirit that it's talking about. It is talking uh, in, uh, in Ezekiel there. It is talking about a new spirit putting within them. And then in here in, in uh, chapter 17 of John, it talks about this glory. And then also one other thing it talks about is name. Not for, uh, it, all this is transpiring for my holy name's sake. And I want to say, friends, I just want us to remember this word name means authority. 
It means not only an identity, but it means the authority. It is that authority. It is for, for Christ's sake is why he is doing this. And so back in Ezekiel already, he is prophesying about this body that he's talking about, this church, and how he's going to make that church, how he's going to build that church. He is going to put his spirit within them. Go back to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, I find it very, very interesting. Verse 24. I see the story of redemption. Verse 24 of Ezekiel 36. He says, I will take you from among the heathen. I want to tell you, friends, every individual here tonight... That, ha- that was lost and is saved will understand that term that you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You have been taken out from among the unbelievers and have been made part of an identity called the church and that is a, the, the believers. And then verse 25 Latter part, it talks about, or no, in 25 it says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean. That is an expression of sanctification. Sanctification is what the word does to us. It cleanses us and refines us and purges us. The word of God convicts us. The word of God brings condemnation onto sin. And it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's called sanctification. By the washing of the water of the word. And then in the 26 and 27 when it talks about a new new heart. A new spirit. My spirit. That my friends is called regeneration. And that is so important that we understand my friends. That is What the church of Jesus Christ is composed of is men and women that are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Ye must be born again. And I do not believe that it is coincidence that this chapter comes just before chapter 37 where it talks about dry bones. The valley of dry bones. No sinew, no meat. Nothing on those bones in a minute. That valley was full of dry bones. Dead. Absolutely dead. And then in verse 14 of verse 30 or chapter 37, he again says, and shall put my spirit in you and ye shall live. And I shall place you in my own land. Then shall ye know that I the Lord have spoken it and have performed it, saith the Lord. And then you can go back to the bottom or to the latter part of chapter 37. And there it's the beautiful picture of the Messiah. The prince forever in verse 25. The prince forever. That is the Messiah, the seed of David. It says in here, it says, my servant David shall be their prince forever. That is the seed of David will be the prince forever. In verse 26 of chapter 37, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And you can read on down through towards the end. And he will, in verse 27, it says, My tabernacle shall be with them, and the heathens shall know it. My friends, I want to say very clearly that every born-again Christian will understand the valley of dead bones. You know when you were dead. And he quickened you and made you alive. My friends, that is what it's talking about. It is talking about you and I dead in sin. And that picture came very vividly clear to me. And I'll just give you a little window of my testimony. I want to say, friends, it wasn't until I was 28 years old that God got a hold of me. That he saved me. And I was, I was a, I was a lost, I was a sinner, I was dead in trespasses and in sin. And then I was driving down Highway 89 on a fertilizer truck one night. 
listening to Chuck Swindle talking to fathers. I was listening to Chuck Swindle preaching a message unto fathers and I don't know at all what the entire message was. But I was driving down that road and I was listening to that message and then uh, Swindoll stopped and he said, Fathers, and I want you to pay attention. If somebody would come to your children and ask your children who is the most godliest person in their lives, what would your children answer? And then it was that dead quiet. And then he said, Would it be a bishop in the church? Would it be a minister in the church? Would it be a deacon in the church? I'll never forget that because he used the very structure that I was accustomed to. All three offices. Or would it be an aunt? Or would it be an uncle? Or would it be supposedly their mother? All those names I knew outdid me. And then he goes and says, if it isn't you as fathers, you're not doing your job. I was condemned. I was condemned. At that very moment, I knew all the names that were mentioned were more godly than I. And I have two boys following me And a vision came across to me. I was standing on the fringes of hell. And I want to say, friends, it is no words that can describe the screaming of torment coming out of that awful, sulfury pit of hell. And I was standing there looking down in that awful abyss. And I looked back and I saw two boys following me. I wept. I pulled that old Ford over on the shoulder of the highway. And I committed my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And from that day on, I endeavored to be faithful. But the struggle was far from over. Months later, one Wednesday night I was going to Bible study. I was hungry. Well, let me just say this part yet. When I got saved, I mean, there was a Bible in every room of our house. I was so hungry for the truth. And wherever I was, I needed the word. I needed the word. I was an addict. And God convicted me of that, of that, of that one addiction and the others as well. But in this one in particular, I took out the cigarettes from my shirt pocket and I placed the little New Testament in there instead. So every time the craving would go, I'd reach for my pocket and instead of the cigarettes, I read the New Testament. I still have that New Testament at home and it is very special to me. And I want to say, friends, the journey only began then. Number of months later, I'm going to guess approximately six months later, I was on fire for God. I was loving God. And I was serving Him. One Wednesday night on the way to the to Bible study, I was driving down the road by myself. We had about 35 minutes to go to church. And it was just down the road from uh, Deacon Duck Baker, that, that is a deacon at the Moorfield Church, just past his place. All of a sudden, there was a barrier, an object, something between me and God. I couldn't sense that relationship. And it was an object. And I couldn't get around it. Turmoil started in my heart. There was question, there was question. Like, what's going on? My relationship is, is, is being hindered. I can't reach God. My communication just stops. And the memory of a sin I committed was brought to my attention. And it was a sin that I never expected that I was able to overcome by just simply confessing it. And that memory came back and caused turmoil and turmoil. But I couldn't, I couldn't get to God. 
And then those words came to me that Jesus said when he was tempted. And it was, get thee hence, Satan. And I'm telling you, if the windows were open, I don't know how many people could have heard me, but it was vocal and it was loud because I was in a panic because my relationship with God was was being hindered. There was an object between me and God and that was a dark time. There was a time of turmoil when I understood peace. And when I resisted Satan in the name of Jesus Christ, that barrier was disintegrated. It was gone. My relationship with God was was for was just amazingly enacted again and I looked down the sin that I could not accept a forgiveness for for uh, through simple confession I saw that sin laying at the foot at the base of the cross just like it's described in the valley of dry bones it was a skeleton There was no sinew on it. There was no life in it. It was dead as dead can be. And I looked up and blood was dripping down on that skeleton. And as I looked, my eyes went all long up. I saw the facial expression of Jesus. We won the victory. And I want to tell you, my friends... I'm telling you this story to tell you this. Hell is real, but Jesus is real. And he is greater than any power and demonic powers on planet earth. If we but confess our sins. John chapter nine, First John 1 verse 9 came so clear to me. If ye confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I want to tell you, friends, the valley of dry bones is a reality for the lost. The valley of the dry bones is the result of sin and a life of debauchery. A life, it is dead. There's no life in it. But I want to say, friends, through the blood of the Lamb, through the blood of Jesus Christ, There is no shadow of a doubt in my mind that he will bring life into those dry bones and he will bring you out of that valley and he will bring life into you. And like it says there in Ezekiel, I will put a new heart. And that's another thing that I want for us to understand. God doesn't just renovate the old. It says a new birth Experience. What does a new birth mean? It means a new heart. He will take the heart of stone out of us and he will give us a heart of flesh. One that he can instill and put his spirit within us and give us that new life. Oh, my friends, it is a reality. It is an absolute reality. And so then I, I want to stand here before you and not saying it boastfully, but as a result of that revelation, there is no question about it that a Christian will and should know whether they are born again or not. You cannot walk out of darkness and into light and not know it. There is a distinct difference. There was a change. And I could tell you stories after stories how God impressed upon me change and change and I want to tell you young folks and everybody that's here tonight if you want a lifestyle that is exciting and a life that is thrilling and a life that is adventurous commit your life to God follow his will and way and without a shadow of a doubt it is far from boring because he's going to continue to change you and change you and change you And that is what the church of Jesus Christ is composed of. It is composed of people, as I said the first night, a work in progress. None of us have reached a perfection yet. None of us at all. No, Dennis, I'm sorry to bust your bubble, but you got a ways to go yet. I'm serious. I know he agrees with me. Because, my friends, he has begun a good work in us. 
and he will said he will perform it unto the end. So now I am one of God's covenant people. Because he made a covenant to me and I made a covenant to him. And that new uh, spirit is working in my life. Am I perfect? Oh, my no. But I do know without a doubt in my mind that that Shekinah glory, the power of God, the grace of God, the indwelling of God that was sitting in between those cherubims guided the children of Israel. And uh, all, all that is right here. It's right here, friends. And that to me is so exciting when I can go through the Old Testament and I can see that the Shekinah glory, the amazing grace that it performed throughout the Old Testament, it can perform the very same thing in your heart and in mine. Amen? My friends, don't be satisfied with hanging around dead bones down in the valley. But I want to say, engage. Submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Engage your life into the, into the Lordship, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And He will empower you. He will invigorate you. He will, He will enable you. Is it going to be easy? No. Because John says there in John chapter 17 that the world will hate you. Why? Because you have light within you. And light will will uh, permeate from you and enlighten darkness in other people's lives. Oh, I remember the times it was awful when I left this life of hypocrisy and I came across godly people. Yeah, it was like a straitjacket on me. It was, didn't feel good. Like let me lose. And when they were gone, huh, now I can be myself again. Conviction. I want to ask you a question. Conviction. Do you like conviction? Alright, let me start over here. What, what is conviction? What is conviction? It is the Spirit of God bringing discomfort upon you so that the attention can come onto a thing that needs to change in your life. Makes you very uncomfortable. I just get so excited when I see people uncomfortable. Oh, it just thrills me to death. No, to life. Ah, whatever. Fictitious speaking. I want to say, friends, can, do, you, do you like conviction? How many of you tonight, let's show Barry's head. How many of you love conviction? Oh, okay. We have a problem. If you don't like conviction, I want to say, friends, that will stifle the Spirit of God. What did the psalmist say? Create in me a clean heart, O God. He begged conviction. He begged the convicting power of God to rest upon him to expose and reveal imperfections and things that must change. We must invite that, friends. And I'm not going to be critical to you because I know what you mean. The feeling of conviction does not feel good. I understand. But thanks be to God that it doesn't. Because if conviction would make us feel good, then we'd be satisfied to stay in the gutters of hell. But thanks be to God that he brings convictions upon our lives and brings a discomfort and a dissatisfaction in our spirit and rests that agonizing conviction upon my heart and says, Willis, you've got to change in this area. Oh, yes, and he just presses upon it harder yet. And he just, oh, there's times you just, you don't want to give in. And then when you do, Oh, why was I so stubborn? Conviction is a beautiful thing. The other thing that I want to make very clear, and I want you to take this cliche home with you. Conviction is not condemnation. Conviction is the revelation of God's love to the ones he does love. 
Conviction is not condemnation. It is the expression of God's grace and mercy extended to that individual and bring that uncomfortable situation up to the surface and so that we can deal with it. And if it's not dealt with, I might want to say, friends, it's a dangerous place to be. So I would say, friends, the church of Jesus Christ is a body of people that will continue to be placed under conviction because we are changed, what? From glory to glory to glory. We're changed in every day of our lives. We're changed more and more and more. Let us never dupe to the idea that once I'm saved, I'm always saved and I can live like the devil. That is wrong theology. It is wrong. Let us get engaged in the things of the church of Jesus Christ. Let us get engaged in what God has designed for his people to bring them from imperfection to perfection called sanctification. By the washing of the water of the word in and through our lives. That new spirit within us Performing a supernatural grace that nothing else ever will. I want to say, friends, how many of you have been baptized? Show by raised hands. Okay? You all have been baptized. Do you remember the covenant that you made? How many of you have ever reiterated or what sat down and looked at that covenant that you made and sought out whether how am I doing living out my covenant have any of you done that all right I I, I brought the the, and they're they're not all the same but I'll share the one that we do first question that was asked do you believe in one true and eternal almighty God who is the creator and preserver of all visible and invisible things? And your answer was what? What was the answer? Or yes, or I do. Just say it the way you said it that day. I want to hear it. And you said? Perfect. All right. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God? That He is the only Savior of mankind? That He died upon the cross and gave Himself a ransom for our sins? That through Him we might have eternal life? And you answered? That's right. And then He says... Do you believe in the Holy Ghost, which proceeded from the Father and the Son, that He is an abiding comforter, sanctifies the hearts of man, and guides them in all truth? And you said, Do you believe in the Holy Ghost? Do you believe in that power? And you said, Yes. And then He goes on to say, Listen carefully. Are you truly sorry for your past sins? Well, yeah, right? Okay, now the next one. Are you willing to renounce Satan? Did you know that that was in one of your vows? Are you willing to renounce Satan? Are you willing to renounce the world? And are you willing to renounce all the works of darkness? And are you willing to renounce your own carnal will and sinful desires? Did you know he said that? And you said what? How are you doing? How are you doing? I want to say, friends, that is what makes you one of God's covenant people. You committed your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you gave your allegiance to him. Step number one. Step number two was 
you went through and made that an audible, vocal, public expression, and you went through with water baptism. Very orderly, precisely what the church was designed for. And if you ever want to do a study on in the Old Testament how the church uh, uh, order was already designed back then, go into uh, Joshua when the children of Israel went from the wilderness into the promised land. And I want to say, friends, it is not the, pro- the promised land is not this, uh, is not a picture of heaven. There, it is a picture of going from the wilderness into the church. Because the very first thing that the children of Israel had to do when they crossed the river was what? What, did, what was the first thing that they did after they crossed? That's right. Well, that's, that's what most say. And I'm not going to criticize you, Warren, for saying that. Because Jericho was the first city that they conquered. And that's where our attention goes. But you know what the first, first thing that they did? They circumcised. And that typifies baptism. Second thing they did is they had the Passover, which typifies communion. And then, and then only, were they ready to go to conquer. And I want to tell you, friends, being out of fix or not committed to what God designed, which is this bride, his church, if you're not committed to that, you're not amongst a brotherhood. And my friends, you're not going to fight the battle alone. Christ in his goodness, God in his goodness, designed the church of Jesus Christ so that we collectively can fight the fight of faith together, one with another, arm in arm, heart in heart, collectively, uh, can I say, fighting the battle. We're not meant to be islands. We're not meant to be alone. God designed it. That we are a brotherhood called commitment. And it's a covenant to God and a commitment to one another and being accountable. My friends, we do not value it high enough. I need so much, my brethren and sisters, to help me out. And I'll use a natural image to make my point. I stand here before you. How much of myself can I see with my own eyes? How much can I not see of myself? There is a whole lot of myself that I cannot see. Neither can you. I need a brother to tell me and to stand on guard and to help me out so that all bases are covered. I want to say, friends, there is nobody here that uh, that can cover all bases for themselves. We need brethren and sisters to watch out for each other. We cannot do it on our own. Yes, I understand throughout the globe there's geographics that causes Christians to stand alone. And I mean literally alone. But God has designed a church, his bride, to be the one to help and aid and encourage one another on and forward. And there is, a, and that is why in John 17 it talks about one, as Jesus Christ are one, one with another. So Jesus' desire is that we can be one with him. And the way we can be one with him is being one with another. Because my Bible says that if we do not forgive one another, our Heavenly Father won't forgive us either. It's a very serious thing. Individualism is deadly. Satan just loves individuals. He divides and conquers. If he can get people's nose out of joint with the church and get them divided, if he, he uses the divide and conquer method all the time. And he's very successful. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. My friends, We are to be one, united.
one. Because I titled the message, The Spirit and the Bride. And I want to say, my friends, in Revelation, it talks about the Spirit and the Bride. And you know what? The Spirit and the Bride say the same thing. The Spirit and the Bride have the same message. The Spirit and the Bride shine the same light. The Spirit and the Bride have the same Father. The Spirit and the Bride are not of the world. The Spirit and the Bride are one as Christ and the church are one. When there are people that say that they are filled with the Spirit, that they are born again Christians and have their nose out of joint with the church, I question it. Because I want to say, my friends, I'm going to ask you this question. What is Christ coming back to retrieve and get? What is he coming for? What's it called? The church. How in the world do you expect to be raptured with the church if you're not one with it? The Spirit and the Bride say the same thing, half the same message, shine the same light, half the same Father. And that is why I say that the Church of Jesus Christ is not built on profession. It's deeper than that. Yes, profession is important. But there are many people that profess a Spirit-filled life, but don't love the Bride. How, how, my friends, can we expect to meet the bridegroom if we're not part of the bride? How did you ponder that? We are one. John 2, 22, sorry, John 17, verse 22. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given them. Why? That they may be one, even as we are one, meaning God and Christ. I in them, and thou in me, that thou may, that they may be made perfect, or mature, or complete. In one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them that thou hast loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold, hold high, esteem it high, value it high, behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Oh, I can just hear the plea here. Jesus saying, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, underscore that word name, thy authority, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. The question is, my father, or, or, or for my friends, not my father, my friends, my question is to us all, have we committed our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and made him King, Savior, and lover of our soul? Have we? If we say we have, but don't love his bride, how can that be so? I want to challenge us all. Love the church with all your heart, my friends, because I know, my friends, I stand here before you without a shadow of a doubt how it is to sit in pews Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and being absolutely alone. It's an awful place to be. 
Awful place to be. Looks good. Deceives a lot of people. But are we one? One. As Jesus Christ and the Father are one. That's binding. That is unity. That is love beyond measure. And that will provide. It will sustain. It will protect. And it will encourage. It will strengthen us. It will give us what we don't have ourselves. I just plead, my friends, for any and all to get engaged in the life of Christ. That Christ is in us and through us and guide us and keep us until that day. Are we within the fold? Is the question I would like to ask you.